Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Rob Cornell joins us now. He's ING's Chief International Economist, joining us here uh, in Bloomberg's European headquarters uh, in London. And, and let's just take stock of where things stand right now. The swoon that we've seen about the prospects for new economic policy coming from President-elect Donald Trump. Are we seeing the markets treat that more soberly? Uh, now, there was such wild enthusiasm after the elections. Are we seeing some reevaluation or, or taking stock of the fact that it may not happen as people would like it to happen or may not happen as quickly? Well, we certainly don't think it'll happen quite as quickly yeah. or quite to the extent that uh, I think people thought in the immediate aftermath of the uh, the election result. However, we will over the next couple of weeks get the uh, the president's budget, you know, which is you know a kind of uh, Christmas present wish list, uh-huh. which will have everything in it. I mean, you, you know how these work. You, you ask for everything on the assumption that you'll only get some of it. So I think that could provide another boost. But I think in the in the very short term, we have seen a bit of a. Not so much a reevaluation, just a we've gone a bit too far. Let's just take stock a little bit and wait and see what happens now. You mentioned that Christmas list, and I just think of the fact that we haven't really had a traditional budget process in Washington, D.C. for so <laughs> no. long now that regular order seems like a thing of the past. Do you expect that we'll see a, a return to it? We'll have Republicans controlling both houses of Congress and, and the White House as well. Do you expect to return to what was traditionally the process in Washington, regular order, getting a budget from the White House, getting a budget from Congress, not having all of these continuing resolutions and stopgaps? Yeah, I think that that seems to be the most likely uh, way of it. I mean, I, I dare say that Donald Trump won't be uh, totally delighted with everything that Congress suggests he can have in the end, but I think he's got room to be optimistic that at least on the tax-cutting front, they'll give him something, maybe not as much and not as quickly, and maybe it'll be more staged, but there's certainly room for uh, for improvement on taxes. And let's face it, what's not to like about lower taxes? Everybody loves that. There is some so much uncertainty right now here in the UK, here in the US, especially when it comes to trade uh, policy. We were looking at the, the remarks from Theresa May, the Prime Minister, over the weekend, looking for some guidance on what trade policy in the in the UK might look like going forward. We're certainly doing that in the US as well. You've seen the tweets as, as we all have here. Do we have a better sense of what Donald Trump's trade policy is going to be going forward? What, what do you look to for, for evidence of that? Yeah, well, I, I think we've been looking at this really long and hard over the last uh, mm-hmm. couple of weeks to try and get a sense of this. This is the really crucial factor. The fiscal side's interesting and it's important. And it does make a difference to domestic uh, domestic growth. But trade's the really big one. That's the one he can really mess up on. Um, and with the, the appointment of, you know, four very key trade uh, uh, members of his, uh, his cabinet and his team, all of whom have been extremely outspoken and negative about China and Chinese trade, uh, that the rumors that there is going to be a sort of blanket uh, import tariff going in, that is beginning to make us think, well, maybe it is going to be a tougher trade Trump uh, than we thought initially, and that could also have a, an impact on market sentiment. I was talking with uh, Michael Froman, the, the U.S. Trade Representative, yesterday, sort of an exit interview with him as he prepares to leave that office. He's had a tough go of it trying to push for the Trans-Pacific Partnership to, to no avail, maybe shaking his fist at the heavens as the ship went down. Uh, and one thing we talked about was the way that his office looks to be reconfigured going forward. You mentioned uh, the, the role of commerce 
uh, in the new term, it seems like uh, Wilbur Ross might take a larger role in negotiating trade deals. Uh, there is this trade council chaired by uh, Peter Navarro. Is there a risk to that in, in not having it as centralized as it, as it has been the negotiation uh, for trade deals, uh, the, 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 the person bringing about enforcement actions, the WTO? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think uh, the era of big multilateral trade deals uh, really is pretty much over. I think uh, a lot of countries have realized that they can actually make much quicker uh, progress and much more, more sort of substantial progress on, uh, on individual smarter uh, bilateral trade deals. I think there's going to be a lot more of that going on. And for that, you don't need such a centralized mechanism. You look at the, the balance that you have to strike between free trade and security, and that's certainly in uh, acute focus here uh, in the UK and in Europe. Uh, when you're making that balance, is security always going to, to win out? How do, you, how do you toe that line? Uh, and that's that's a really tough one. I mean, I think security is often an excuse that the uh, the policymakers will just fall back on for anything they don't particularly like or anything that they don't think is going to go down particularly well with the with the general public. I mean, it has to be a factor that you bear in mind, in particular when you're talking about energy. It's one of those crucial uh, factors that has to be uh, you know, taken into account. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I think it is a bit of a scapegoat at times for, for when they want to do what they want to do. I know Tom wants to talk a bit about uh, Fed policy. He was heralding well, your knowledge of the, the Rob Fed. Carnell is, yes. Yeah, Rob, Rob is, is I, I consider the major London acts on actual Fed policy. And you have a huge advantage of that, of being distant. Uh, there's something about, we, we've learned that over the years, it's something about an American economist in Minnesota or, or North Carolina, as Dennis Gartman is. Uh, you have a big advantage being in London. To, to our American listeners, what is the major distinction between the Washington Central Bank and the London Central Bank? I would say that the, uh, the Fed is, is a much more political animal. Um, I think the Bank of England is, is also political, but of all the central banks, I think the, all the independent central banks, I'd say the Fed is possibly the least independent. I think it's much more um, attuned. It's not driven by, it's not, uh, it's not forced by or cajoled by, but I think it's certainly influenced far more by politics than, uh, than the most of the other central banks around the G7. Which goes to Mr. Trump and the House Financial Services Committee, et cetera. Which will you watch? Will you watch the executive branch or the Republicans on the Hill to see a change in tone towards a central bank? Yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the answer to that one is. I mean, I think there's, there's, there's very definitely a sense from Donald Trump that he would like to have more control over the Fed. Um, I mean, there's been the talk about uh, uh, auditing the Fed. I mean, of course, the Fed is already audited as a, as a financial institution, yeah. but its, its monetary policy decisions have not been audited. I'm, I'm interested to know how that's going to go. I mean, that, that clearly makes the Fed a less, yeah. an even less independent I, central bank. I love this, uh, David, being in, in, in London and talking about <laughs> Richmond, Virginia. Mr. <laughs> Lacker, Lacker yeah. retires, and there's a character to Al Broadus's Richmond Fed, it has a certain tone. Is there a Carnell shortlist huh. who will darken the door in Richmond? That, Marvin Goodfriend's always on the list at Carnegie Mellon. That, there isn't. I'm, I'm always fascinated whoever comes in. Uh, I mean, you go through this, this ritual process where, where the newbie has to be evaluated and they typically toe the line and behave in very much a sort of neutral fashion, at least the first three meetings, as they get their, their toe under the table and work out exactly where they sit and how the process works. And then you start to see, the, see them yeah. sort of throw their, their weight around. And, of course, they are reflecting the... Uh, the, the regional reality of, of, of where they're coming from. And so, you know, very different uh, economies going yeah. on all around the U.S. They're all original folks, and you really wonder how uh, our new president will, how everyone will adapt and adjust to the demands of a new executive 
uh, branch. From London, David Gurren, Tom Keen, Bloomberg Surveillance, here in the United Kingdom, around the world, across America. David, you do a data check and you just migrate immediately to peso and lira. The emerging market stories are really something. Yeah, that depreciation seemingly continuing there. You talk about Jeff Lacker. I think he's a guy who started out at the Richmond Fed, was an economist in the research department at the Richmond Fed. That'll be something that'll be difficult to replace as well, someone with that much institutional knowledge of the place. But you're right, looking at currencies this morning, uh, sterling as well. I've been looking at that, uh, seeing that weaken at uh, 121.18 right now. In Turkish uh, lira, with a new leg up, it's going to go through. the recent weakness that we've seen uh, this morning. Rob Carnell with us with the ING uh, as we look at the Central Bank of the United uh, States. We were talking in the break about Bullard, Lacker retiring at Richmond. Uh, Bullard of St. Louis has had a unique impact. St. Louis known as a research house with decades and, of course, their great uh, statistical and chart base uh, that they have. But the splash last year was a short paper, a little paper, even Bullard admitted that, about the x-axis and that Guys like you, Rob, always look at the y-axis, the up and down or whatever the chart is, and the time function is usually ignored. Bullard says, don't ignore the time function, and where we're heading is regime change. We get somewhere, things change, the Fed changes. Do you believe that's feasible? Could we ever implement Bullard regime change? I, th- I think it's. I think it is feasible. I think it's a very uh, accurate description of the world we live in. We, uh, you know, that the U.S. and much of uh, the developed world, Europe, the U.K., has been in this uh, low growth, low productivity environment for a very long period. Now, I think Bullard's point was was along the lines of it's difficult to see how that's going to change anytime soon. But at some point, it actually will. And when it does, it'll happen in a a fairly step-like fashion. That's the point at which the Fed, or whatever central bank is involved, will have to react very, very rapidly or find itself massively behind the curve. Whether or not central banks can do that in reality is another question. I have my doubts. How do you process what uh, what Fed presidents say, what they think, what they're believing at this point? Are Are you reading every speech? Is there a particular president you don't hear enough from that you'd like to hear more from Tom and I were talking a few weeks back about how there can be a cacophony here where you're just trying to figure out if there's some consensus among uh, all of these participants in the Federal Reserve uh, system. How do you how do you process all of it? I, I do sometimes wonder whether it's it's worth the effort. Mm-hmm. Um, partly because you know I've always felt that the way that the Fed was structured, that the insiders in effect rule the roost. What they want to happen. Those are the governors. The governors, yeah. the uh, uh, New York President, Fed. New York yeah. Fed. Uh, vice chair, et cetera, um, they, they basically set policy. And if the regional Fed uh, presidents come alongside, all well and good, because it makes it look as if everybody's unanimous. But I'm not sure that on their own, those, those four rotating regional Fed uh, uh, members can ever really change policy unless it had already been agreed by, uh, by the insiders. And uh, you know, typically, just, just the waiting means that's very unlikely to happen. Interesting for the debate. And often, I think, in, in Bullard's case, gives you a sense of where the debate's going. Going, but doesn't necessarily give you uh, any sense of exactly what's going to happen next. Tom mentioned the, the politics that the Fed is having to deal with here. Looking ahead to, to, to this year and beyond, how are we going to strike a balance here between what the Fed wants to do, what the Fed is doing, what Congress wants the Fed to be doing, uh, and the White House? I mean, it seems like this is going to be a particularly thorny field for, for all of these uh, participants to have to navigate here. Uh, yeah. How difficult is it going to be? Uh, very difficult, in short. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to be uh, you know, chairing the Fed right now. You, you're not going to please all the people all the time. In fact, you're probably likely to upset most of the people most of the time uh, with Fed policy this year. They are going to be at least attempting to hike rates. 
um, if they respond to the to the macro data, um, they're going to be seen as you know taking the punch bowl away from the party, etc. You know these sort of usual cliches. If they don't, they're going to be criticised for being behind the curve. Um, you know they've they've been criticised in the past for juicing the stock market, supporting politicians. Does that change under under President-elect uh, Trump once he uh, gets inaugurated? Will he like them to juice the stock market? It's a very difficult one. How how can you how can you operate in those environments? Well, that's the unexpected. Yeah that maybe we'll begin to hear about today at this press conference. When was the last press conference of David Gurrow? Was it? More than 150 like, days ago. 167, ago? I believe. Yeah, 167. Yeah. 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 I mean, maybe it begins today with this press conference. What's Rob Carnell's unexpected <laughs> for Janet Yellen and for our economics that underpins all that we do? Well, her unexpected, I think it, it's, it's what they deliver in the, in the next couple of months. I don't think anyone's really expecting them to move in March. I'm struggling to think why they wouldn't. And you mentioned earlier, I believe, on uh, Bloomberg Television, wage growth is just the mystery that's out there. This is the one that's, that's it's the dog that's finally barking. We are now beginning to see wages growth picking up and picking up in a reasonable fashion. What happens if the core rate of inflation, we know the headline, headline rate of inflation is going to ping up in the next two months uh, and, and push us right into the mid-twos, into, into sort of levels where you wouldn't expect to see rates as low as they are. If the wages continue to rise, if we start to see the core rate moving with that, and wages, of course, are a big factor in service sector inflation, that's likely to be pushing up, then it looks as if the Fed's left it too late. Uh, and they have to then respond to that with, with faster responses, more tightening. They're three dots we're not forecasting that ourselves, but that's not looking totally out of the realms of possibility if these things continue moving in that direction. Very quickly here, help me with polling. How are you regarding polling now as we look ahead to political risk in, in Europe going forward? Does it tell you what's going on in France or the Netherlands? Or are you going to pay less attention to it uh, in light of what we've seen? Uh, the, the politics in Europe's really, really interesting right now. You've got... Um, You've got an incredibly busy political calendar. The one that everybody's really been focusing on, I think maybe uh, inappropriately, mm -hmm. has been France. I think that's actually much less of an issue than anybody's made out. Okay, Rob Carnell, thank you so much for the ING hope, yeah. in our studios here in London. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. I want to bring in Francisco Onzaga. She is a lead economist at the World Bank, based here in London. The World Bank out with its latest Global Economic Prospects Report, Outlook uh, for the New Year. Great to have you with us here in London at Bloomberg's uh, European headquarters. And I just want to pick up on a quotation from your boss, from uh, Jim Kim, the president of the, the World Bank, talking about the momentum we're seeing uh, right now, speaking of the need to increase investments in infrastructure uh, and people. Looking ahead to 2017, what's going to catalyze that and who's going to be doing that, uh, do you think? Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you for being the here. The slowdown in the emerging markets is, is, a, is a real challenge. Investment growth in the emerging markets has dropped from 10% in 2010 to 3.4% in 2015 and probably below based on partial data. And uh, that, that is something that can undermine long-term growth potential. For example, it is highly correlated with productivity growth. Uh, and that undermines the potential of future uh, growth prospects, which in turn is required to lift people out of poverty. What can be done? Any number of policies is available, and it really depends on the countries. Some can in, uh, implement public investment stimulus. 
which we estimate does have at least uh, over two years and benefits for private investment as well. For example, a one percentage point increase in public investment growth might lift private investment by 0.3 percentage points. Others don't have that option because of lack of fiscal space. They might want to reallocate expenditures towards higher yielding investment, or they might want to re increase tax bases to raise the revenues. And of course, all of this works most when it's complemented with structural reforms to improve business climates. We talk an awful lot about the, the uncertainty that certainly overlaid uh, the U.S. And, and the United Kingdom. You're focused on emerging markets. Uh, does the same sort of political uncertainty persist there as well? It's a broad brush, I suppose, the same emerging markets. But. Yes, two points on this one. Yes, global policy uncertainty is at a record high, and it is driven by all the major, most of the major economies. Mm -hmm. And it is something that affects investment. It, we estimate, for example, if you just look back in history, if you take the period yeah. 2010 to 12, the euro area crisis, the policy uncertainty in, the, in Europe at the time may have reduced investment growth in the ECA region, Eastern Europe, by 0.6 to 1.3 percentage points. That's global uncertainty. Mm. In addition, we document in our report a clear increase in political risk across emerging markets, which further then weighs on investment growth in them. In Washington, there's that street between the World Bank and the IMF. I saw you once out on that street breaking up a fistfight. <laughs> and, you know, there's this contention between the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund where you guys don't talk that much about foreign exchange, about the dollar and dynamics. The fact is you're putting out your wonderful report on something everyone's focusing on, which is a dearth of investment amid the beginning of emerging market foreign exchange adjustment. Foreign exchange weaken. Rates go up, growth goes down. Isn't investment the first order condition affected by that growth coming down? That's our concern. So we are interested in advanced economies like the U.S. mainly because of their impact on emerging markets. So I think what you're referring to is uh, the potential for dollar appreciation. And it's true that foreign currency borrowing has increased a lot in emerging markets yeah. over the, since the crisis. However, the bulk of borrowing by corporates in emerging markets. Right. More than 80% remains domestic currency and remains right. by domestic banks. So their main vulnerability is to a rise in global financing condition. The only reason I'm going to be nice to you is Dr. Kim once gave me a Dartmouth bow tie, so, which, was, which I still treasure. It, it, it was great. But, but I don't want to get you in trouble with Dr. Kim. You can't mention the dreaded T word, Mr. Trump. I get the idea that Not trade, the World the Bank can't okay, okay. talk about him. But come on, it's a Trump reflation. Call it the U.S. reflation in that. How does that impinge on the body of your important report? The answer is it's a huge deal, right? It's the U.S. is a big part of the global Thank economy, you. a quarter of global GDP, it, a tenth of global trade. So what happens what in the U.S. of course does not stay in the U.S. It has global implications. But that said, the newer Trump uh, administration's policies, there have been there has been much discussion about them. We simply do not have enough detail to incorporate them into our forecasts. So when we say that we expect growth in the U.S. to rise from 1.6 to 2.2% in 2017, it is excluding all these uh, policies that are currently being mooted. Yeah. This is important, David, because within the report, there's more talk about the U.S. than I've ever seen. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> let me ask you about China, and you, you project a, a slowdown in growth there. Uh, where will we see growth? Where's the most growth going to come from? Is it in South Asia? 
in the, in the next year? Where, where do you see the, the bright spots in the global economy right now? Clearly, China is uh, is slowing gradually, just as expected. We expect six and a half percent growth in 2017, six point three percent in 2018 and 19. And the authorities are, are conducting a careful balancing act between reducing vulnerabilities, financial vulnerabilities, and steering activity with the occasional stimulus. Now, <laughs> surprisingly, there are there. there there's actually a whole group of emerging markets that is doing that has done fairly well mm. since the crisis, and those are the commodity ex- importers. It's only one third of emerging markets well, Poland, in developing no, economies. I mean, Poland's not an emerging market, I would suggest, but Poland has, has done really well. Poland is one, but the others that have perhaps done best are the ones in East Africa, West Africa. It's Ethiopia, it's the Rwandas, mm. and the Senegals. And one of the reasons they've done well is, yes, they've benefited from low oil prices, but also they mm. have in- implemented a lot of public investment to support growth. Is the United Kingdom on its way to becoming an emerging market yeah. under your definition? We have revised our forecast downwards for the UK to 1.2% uh, in 2017 in line with the yeah. Treasury. But that has you have to take into account that we published our last forecast long before the Brexit vote. <laughs> Uh, the, the, the phrase new normal is probably overused, but when you look at investment, to circle back to investment, and you see where it is now. Is there a risk that we're at a level that we're going to stay at, that we're not going to see uh, as high investment as we've seen? Those are certainly the expectations, the long-term expectations of the consensus. And that, that is our concern, that really the investment growth is not going to pick up absent a big policy push. That is a whole package of measures. No single measure will really, there's no silver bullet. No single measure will lift investment growth. I'm interested just in the particular difficulties of putting together an outlook like this amid so much uncertainty. You write about Europe, Tom asked about Poland, you write about Europe, and um, there is the sense there that things could change radically depending on what happens in certain elections, what happens with the European Union, uh, whether or not things stay as cohesive as they, as they have. How tricky was it to assemble something like this, this many hundreds of page long report during this particular climate? Yeah, we do try to measure risk and uncertainty in a fan chart. So we do estimate that the uncertainty around our baseline forecast has increased since last time we we published. But the way we try to get at it is by scenario analysis. For example, we do do a scenario, we estimate a scenario of what would happen if the U.S. cut taxes the way it has been proposed. Mm -hmm. That would be Mr. Trump. (laughs) <laughs> that would be the new administration, yes. Very good. She got around that nicely. As the new administration suggests, then yeah. what would happen? So we estimate, and we're using the, the Fed's own model, so we estimate that uh, that may raise growth in the U.S. to up to 2.5 percent this year in 2017 and up to 2.9% in 2018. But that's under many assumptions. First, that this is actually implemented Mm. as proposed, both corporate and income tax cuts, and that would be a large revenue loss, a sizable revenue loss. Second, that there are no offsetting other expenditure, for example, expenditure measures. Third, that the U.S. Fed does not behave in any different way as the the model projects. For example, it raises interest rates faster Mm -hmm. than expected. And fourth, it does not uh, take into account possible trade policies. And these trade policies would matter for the way that U.S. growth feeds into global growth. Within the zeitgeist of the World Bank, very quickly here, is there just an understanding that the age of multilateralism is over? Within the vast bureaucracy of Dr. Kim's World Bank, is it is it adjusting to a bilateral World Bank? So we certainly flag 
the risk of rising protectionism as one of the key mm -hmm. risks, the first risk actually we've mentioned to global growth. But that goes beyond any individual country. If you look at the G20 countries, right. the number of new trade restrictive measures in 2016 was a record high. And there were, yeah. again, yet another year, more trade restrictive well, measures implemented than liberalizing ones. That's all the time. This has been absolutely fantastic. Francesca, uh, Anzergay, thank you so much. She is with the World Bank. David Gurren, Tom Keen in London, worldwide. This is Bloomberg. It is a good day. If any day is a good day to speak to Dennis Gartman, but it's a particularly good day uh, today. Mr. Gartman writes a newsletter. He is one of the brave and foolish who actually put his track record at the back of the newsletter, forcing Gartman to be one of the great pinatas of uh, <laughs> business news and undeserved, I might point out, because we are all wrong at numerous and frequent uh, moments. Dennis, let me migrate to the politics first. What would be your first question to Mr. Trump this morning at the press conference? Why are you so incredibly attuned or in favor of some sort of trade protection if you understand the history of, of the modern world where tariffs and trade protection always give way to weaker economic environs domestically and politically? Why are you pushing ahead with that? That would be my very first question, Tom. Do you, well said, do you perceive that there are adults in the room or at least budding within the administration that will amend, adjust, adapt the Trumpian message? No, I'm fearful that there are no adults in the room. I, I have not seen anybody yet other than uh, the gentlemen who have been professing or promoting even greater trade protection. So I'm afraid that there are no adults in the room, and that is a, a truly a great fear on my part. Hopefully, point, hopefully cooler minds will prevail. Hopefully adults will show up. Um, but right now, I have not seen that, and that is disconcerting to me. How do you read the, the tweets about Ford and GM and Boeing and Lockheed? Do you see these as, as one-offs, as uh, uh, things unto themselves, not representative of some sort of larger industrial policy? What's your read on his targeting of individual companies? I think it's dangerous. I wish he wouldn't do that. In, in, uh, in, the, in the first edition of, of the, the Gartman letter this year, I put out my surprises for the year, and my one hope surprise was that the president would stop tweeting. For a couple of days, it appeared that he had, but now he seems to yeah. be tweeting even more uh, aggressively than he had in the past. I find this dangerous. Making opinion <laughs> by tweets is, is something that yeah. simply should not be, uh, it shouldn't be done. That's like you get whipsawed on oil, Dennis. I had to say that. <laughs> I just had to get that in there. Dennis, well, but at, least, with, at least you haven't said anything about my beloved Wolfpack losing by a mere 50 cents. Oh, seconds. yes, uh, almost two to one. Almost <laughs> on a snowy night at the Dean Dome. Yeah, it was a tough loss for you, Dennis. We didn't, we didn't want to go there. <laughs> Dennis Gartman, seriously, though, this has to do with stability, and yeah. there's any ways to go here, but uh, I just put out a chart on Twitter off the Bloomberg Terminal folks of Turkish lira, and as Dennis would say, it's an elegant chart. Uh, it, there is a persistency here. Dennis, I am dismayed by people who dismiss this at oddities of Bloomberg chit-chat. They're not. They're really linked in in their own unknowable way into all that yeah. we do when you see Mexico and Turkey unravel. Well, I, I think take a look also at what's happened to Bitcoin in the past week and a half or two weeks. I mean, it's just a, it's astonishing what is taking place in the foreign exchange market. Not enough people pay attention to foreign exchange. Thankfully, this audience does. But when you get to the, the broad public, they pay very little attention and, and, and they should be paying a great good deal more. What happens in the in the lira is important. What happens uh, in, in, in the uh, 
The Mexican peso is important. What happens in Bitcoin is important. What happens in gold is important, and it's not paid attention to enough. So what's going through Dennis Gartman's mind as you watch the depreciation uh, of the lira? We had the central bank intervening yesterday trying to do something about it. It doesn't seem like that worked out that well. What are you thinking as you watch this depreciation? You know, it's not just the, the central bank there that has, that has failed. Take a look at, at probably the, the one central bank that people had a great deal of confidence in, the, the, the Swiss National Bank, that has been trying to keep its own currency down and can't do that. Normally, a central bank, if they want to do anything, can always keep their currency lower, and they can't. So what we have learned from this is that central bank powers are being diminished in the modern world. I think that's the, the lesson to be taken away from here. You know, uh, we were talking to Bill Dunkelberg yesterday about his uh, NFIB small business optimism report. It was something that uh, the president-elect clearly took an interest in. He tweeted it out three times uh, <laughs> yesterday, uh, flagging this as, as a good sign uh, for the economy. What's your read of, of that data that we got from the NFIB yesterday? Is the message from that simply the economy is doing pretty well here? Don't screw it up? I, I think what it tells us is in the flyover states, things are doing actually quite a good deal better. The deplorables, as Mrs. Clinton would have called us, seem to be doing okay. There was a great deal of enthusiasm that has been engendered by the, the, the arrival or the soon-to-be arrival of the Trump administration. And I think that the coasts have, mis un have not understood what has really taken place. I thought that was a very important bit of ec economic data that came out yesterday, showing the, the NFIB number up as dramatically as it was. That was a very impressive rise in that, in, in that index. And I think it shows that, that animal spirits, according to Mr. Keynes, are in fact rising out there. Mm. I know he wants to talk about red wheat as well. He was calling that out yesterday. We'll do that in the next, we'll do that in the next segment. <laughs> Before next we get there, you brought up Bitcoin, and I know that you haven't been a big enthusiast for yeah. a Bitcoin. What's it going to take for you to, to get more interested in, in cyber currencies? Or do you think this is really a, a flash in the pan, albeit a, you know, a years-long flash in the pan? Uh, at, at 66 years old, I think I'm a bit too old to understand what Bitcoin really is, and, 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 and I simply won't, <clears throat> excuse me, I won't be able to put that a, a great good deal of trust in it, especially with the volatility mm -hmm. that has been incumbent in that one currency. It is, it's astonishing. You cannot move a currency 20 percent oh, in, in, in a week and expect to see that become a usable instrument for the purchase of goods and services. Is it a currency, Dennis Gartman? Well, they call it that. What is the terminology? A Who's crypto, they? A cryptocurrency. It's, I'll give it, you it, crypto. It's a, it's a thing. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's something to be traded right now, and that's about all it is. Thank you. We'll do trading theory in uh, red wheat here with Dennis Gartman in the next <laughs> section. But I want to stay on theme Let's do right it. now, Dennis. Dennis, yeah. there's, everyone agrees, massive and original uncertainty here. You just happened to mention your age. Yeah. I put out a photo of my favorite photo of the president, which is him sitting on the Rosa Parks bus of the history of this president and all that he stands for. I want you to speak to our listeners who are overwhelmed by the uncertainty of the times. How do you stay invested? How do you have confidence in your little pot of money, given the uncertainty that we face? We always have faced uncertainty. We're going to face uncertainty tomorrow. We will face uncertainty next month. We'll face uncertainty next year. We've always faced it. We've always done better. That's just been the trend. There were some of my friends who were who were Clinton supporters were in, were obviously greatly dismayed. The, the country will be fine, no matter who had become the president. The country will become or will be fine. My wife was very despondent, thinking that Mrs. Clinton was going to win, and I had to tell her, sweetheart, Margaret, it's going to be okay. Have a drink, you'll be fine. 
You okay over there, girl? I'm you okay. Never... I'm just, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm That's taking Gar- in the Gartman's, marital advice. No, Gartman's Gartman. got a book coming up. Have a drink. You'll be fine. There's <laughs> a, a title. With that, Dennis, let's switch to uh, your trading. We'll do this in our next section. Good, but yeah. to go out here, uh, Dennis, yeah. give me the why of the look back of 2016. Why was it so hard to take a, a prudent trading stance, whether it was a three-month trade or a, or a nine-month trade. Why was it so darn hard? Yeah, you know, golly day. I wish I could understand that. I got stopped out of good trades so many times last year. It was terribly <laughs> disconcerting to get the major trend right and to be taken out on on, on yeah. small interim corrections is the most debilitating, disturbing soul-destroying circumstance that one can go through. Uh, I I wish I had the answer. If I did, I wouldn't be talking to you today. I'd be out in, uh, I'd be in Monaco or I'd be down in, uh, in Bali enjoying myself. It would be, uh, that, that is the great, that is the great uncertainty that, that, investors and traders have to deal with. To our audience south of your Virginia, I know Clemson's going to Disneyland. Wasn't that a good thing to see? I mean, just for oh. the sport, was that a good thing to see Alabama defeated? Oh, absolutely. It was wonderful. As, as an Atlantic <laughs> Coast Conference devotee, to see Clemson, a land-grant university, I might there say. There we go. <laughs> we can agree. We can agree on that. <laughs> Do you know that, that Gartman last year made so much money in his speaking fees, he bought a 48-foot Grand, uh, grand Banks, and he called the puppy Land. Just, just to get people going. Dennis Gartman with us. My, uh, David, why don't you uh, uh, jump in here with Dennis I know Gartman. you want to get into commodities. Let me stick with currencies for one minute more. Yeah. We're here in London. We uh, were wrapped with attention watching uh, the Prime Minister Theresa May speaking to Sky News this weekend, writing for the Telegraph about the Brexit process. What have you learned, Dennis Gartman, about where this is headed? What have you learned about the contours of a UK-EU trade policy and what that means for sterling? I I think when all of this has run its course, England will, in fact, the U.K. will, in fact, leave. There will be a British removal from the continent from the political circumstance. That's going to happen. The voters have made it clear. They will accommodate or will be accommodated by Germany and France. There will be some reconciliation. Cooler heads, adult minds will prevail. And it all will, this will all resolve itself. Will the, will the pound sterling be under pressure until that resolution comes to, to, to effect later sometime this year? Yes, probably sterling shall be. But in the end, as almost all of these events uh, avail themselves, it, there will be decency and good nature that will finally come to the surface. That's, that's the way it always is resolved. The way it always is, Dennis, in commodities is there's just a presumed chronic deflation or disinflation of price. I don't know much about red wheat. (laughs) It's a reddish grain, a major classification of the United States. Hard hard red winter wheat as opposed to soft Ah. red winter wheat. And I have no idea if I can tell that in my gluten-free bread here in London. Definitely not. Yes, folks, I did eat gluten-free bread last night. Dennis, help me here with the price erosion in the softs and particularly in wheat. Is it back to the pre-China disinflation for commodities? I think it's simply the fact that we are so good at producing crops around the world, whether whether it's wheat, whether it's soybeans, whether it's corn, whether it's cotton. If you take a look at at the history of the last 40 years, every time you look at how much production per acre of any of the major grains or any of the major commodities has been, it's always been higher, drought in, flood out. Yes, you have problems that can can occur because of weather, but on balance, we're just simply better at producing 
uh, amounts of, of commodities on the same amount of acreage than we were 40 years ago. In fact, in the case of corn, we're probably tripled what we can do, what a good farmer 50 years ago oh. would grow. We're probably producing okay. triple that now, and that's not going to stop anytime soon. Thanks to the Penn States, the Ohio States. Uh, the, the land grants. All the land grants. Oh, yes. Those the land grants. Cornell. <laughs> Texas A&M. Texas A&M. <laughs> Dennis. Cal Davis. The, it was the China. Let me get back on script here, Dennis. <laughs> yeah. Help me. Yeah. The, 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 the China commodity boom then, do you perceive that globally and domestically as a one-off? No. I, do I think that the Chinese circumstance of the last uh, 10 years, 15 years, as China has leaped from the 14th century into the 22nd century, and they're not going to go back, uh, the, the Chinese consumers are going to be demanding carpets and rugs and, and brass plumbing fixtures and, and, and uh, wooden furniture and, and, and better housing. There are still some, what, 800 million people in the western provinces that have to move to the eastern provinces and shell, and that will have to be accommodated as, we, as, they, as the world gets wealthier and the world is getting wealthier. That's going to continue. But what, will, what I think shall end up happening is that as demand continues to grow, the ability to produce more will, will keep track with it. And, in fact, if anything, will outpace it. That's been the history of the last hundred years, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Dennis, in the limited time we have left here, let me ask you about oil. I know you've been looking at the correlation between WTI and Brent. At this yeah. point, what does that tell you? What does that correlation tell you about the energy market? Well, I, I think what's most important is the, is the relationship between front-month-to-back-month WTI and front-month-to-back-month Brent. We're continuing to watch the contango, the carrying charge, widen. Even as prices have risen, the contango has widened, which tells you that crude, as I like to say, is bidding for storage. Crude is 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 forcing itself, or the, the abundance of crude, and there is an abundance of crude, is forcing back months to be stronger than front months. It's telling you that there's a, an oversupply. And, and when in a contangoed market, it's very difficult to be bullish of crude oil under any circumstance. There's just simply more of it. We find more of it. We're better at producing it. We're better at finding it. And, mm -hmm. and that's not going to end anytime soon either. Quickly, Dennis, have you amended your gold stance given the Trump reflation? Actually, if, if anything, I have become more amenable to owning gold, in, not in dollar terms, because I'm really quite bullish of the U.S. dollar, and, and, a, and long gold in dollar terms is an implied bet against the dollar, and I'm not willing to make that. However, if you take a look at what gold did last year in terms of the euro, uh, and I think this is an important mm. statistic, the stock market, the S&P was up, what, 9% uh, last year, but uh, gold in, in euro terms was up much more than that. People don't understand that fact. I want to be bullish of gold, but only in terms of currencies that I think yeah. will continue to, to diminish in value. And I think that's primarily the euro first and the yen second. Dennis Garbin, thank you so much. The Garbin uh, letter, always interesting. I just put out on, on Twitter the, the Wikipedia and land-grant schools. Uh -huh. I grew up in a house of land-grant excellence, as Mr. Garbin. Upstate New York mentions. has a good one. In, in well, <laughs> Cornell, your Cornell, they have yeah. like a split school. You've got exactly. two schools. Exactly. Ag school, you've got the architecture school, engineering school. Yeah. Plenty, so. Each, each of them with their own character. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.